Hey everybody, this is James. I am the showrunner here at Self-Evident. And before we start today's episode, I just want to pop in and let you know that we kicked off a listener drive. This is the first listener drive that we've done since we launched the show uh, back in 2019. And if you're enjoying the new season so far, this is really the simplest way for you to support our work and help us be sustainable, help us keep doing this in 2022 and beyond. Right now, we also have a matching donor. That means any dollar amount that you give as a tax deductible donation basically gets doubled. So now's the time. If you love the stories, if you dig what we've been doing, go to selfevidentshow.com slash supporters. That's selfevidentshow.com slash supporters. It just takes a few clicks to double your impact. So let's do this. Here in Arizona, the governor signed an anti-mask mandate. That's Yvonne So. She's one of our longtime listeners and a parent in Tucson, Arizona. She's talking about an executive order and a state law that were both passed in Arizona over the summer. Those laws made it illegal for public school districts to require students, teachers, and other school staff to wear masks. Then, as we were getting ready to send our children back to school, many school districts decided to not enact a mask mandate as they had the year before. So you don't have to wear a mask on the bus because the school bus is part of the school district mm, and you don't have to wear a mask at school. Okay. And teachers cannot ask you to wear a mask. Like a lot of schools across the country, Yvonne's local elementary school was bringing students back into the classroom. And in Arizona, anti-vaccine and anti-mask activists were definitely a thing. It was quite contentious here. I mean, if you go to the local grocery store, you can see people had on their cars, like, your mask looks stupid on you. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. People were picketing outside of schools about having to wear a mask. You might have heard on national news in a town called Vail here in Arizona, mm. there was two parents who were arrested because they brought in zip ties to zip tie the principal <gasps> because she was going to enforce masking. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. And, and what is your feeling when you saw these, these picketers in your community? School should be fun and it should be right. like a <laughs> nice environment, right? Like I don't want my kids seeing all this anger. Right. And then, you know, when they walk into class, come and say, oh, who is wearing a mask? Who's not wearing a mask? I don't want to sit next to you or I don't want to play with you. That just should not be part of their elementary school education or experience. And, you know, the Delta variant was going rampant. Our county was at a high risk level and my district didn't offer a remote option for the year. Okay. So I was left with the option to basically pull my kids out of the district. Wow. Was that a big decision? I mean, it's okay. It's, Mm -hmm. I feel like if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's just, you just kind of have to go with the flow, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then- Make the best best with what you have and just go with it. Yeah. This is Self-Evident, where we tell Asian America stories to go beyond being seen. And today, we're hearing what it's like to go back to school during this latest chapter of the COVID-19 pandemic. We started hearing from our listeners about their back-to-school experiences in July, and I'm recording this in mid-November. This is by no means an exhaustive report. But we wanted to check in with parents, students, and educators where we could during a school year that's definitely not normal. So back to Yvonne So in Tucson. 
Navigating the masking laws of Arizona wasn't the first time Yvonne got involved in her local school district. She's the board chair of the Asian Pacific American Advocates chapter of Greater Phoenix. And she spent time working with local Asian parents and local school districts to incorporate more Asian American history and Asian American authors into their public school curricula, especially as violence against Asian Americans has become more visible in these past few years. After the Atlanta spa shooting, I think people took a little bit more time to reflect on why is this happening and what can we do to make things better? And I think that's when the thought of having more education kind of came up again and people right, are more right. more open to having that discussion. Yeah. A lot of my friends who live on the East Coast or on the West Coast, like on, on, on either coast, their principal sent out letters to the parents, you know, denouncing what happened and denouncing anti-Asian hate. So I sent that to my principal and asked her for a similar statement. And she didn't really see why we needed to do that. Yvonne didn't want to single out one principal as the cause of the problem. For her, this was more about the school district acknowledging anti-Asian racism. She mentioned that there is a equity statement on the school website that the school district drafted after the George Floyd murder. Okay. Which basically is like watered down all lives matter language. Okay. It, it's like, where do you start, right? If, if, if the conversation yeah. is all lives, all lives matter, right? Wow. Then you're not really going to get into the nitty gritty of why our community feels that something needs to be said about this. And, and here you have like a member of their community specifically requesting a statement like that. It's not like mm-hmm. they're, they didn't think of it. They refused. Yeah, I guess you can look at it that way, too. Right, but there, I mean, but there were many grassroots organizations dedicated to Asian Americans. Like, we have a Chamber of Commerce here in Arizona. There's one dedicated to business associations. Everyone wanted a statement from the governor. So we all got together and drafted something, sent it to the governor, sent it to the mayors. And here in our state, our treasurer is Chinese American, and she's running for governor, and she didn't even issue a statement. So if no one at the top is willing to say something and denounce this, does it really matter? For everyone else, all us regular citizens, I think it sets an example that mm-hmm. maybe this is not something that warrants a lot of attention. That must have been really discouraging. I mean, it is discouraging because... You think you've moved so far Mm -hmm. and you look at your own life and you think, oh, wow, you know, I've achieved all this and I live a very nice, comfortable life. But then, you know, the rest of society, do they even really value my people in this community? Before the pandemic started, Yvonne's kids were in a public school with a Chinese immersion program. And as a parent, she'd been trying to help local schools go beyond the usual routine of appreciating Chinese culture. They celebrate the Spring Festival, Chinese New Year, and a lot of like Asian holidays. So teachers are very aware of that and they're eager to teach that and they'll pull me in for Chinese New Year. Oh, can you cook some Chinese food? Can you come speak to them, speak to us about Chinese traditions and stuff like that? But nobody really wants to hear about my Asian American experience. And then from March to May, we could find more people who are more open to having this discussion, Mm -hmm. who saw 
that there was a teachable moment in, you know, after the Atlanta spa shootings and who agreed that there needs to be more curriculum or we need to showcase more Asian Americans in the classrooms. Just, so just so students can see themselves reflected in the material mm-hmm. and people who are not from the community can value you know, their peers who don't look like them and see them as from here. There was a little bit more openness to have this conversation, but it's a matter of getting the material in teachers' hands and having them teach the material. That means going from district to district, like classroom to classroom, holding these teachers' hands and helping them integrate the material into their classrooms. It's a lot of work. Back in August, when there was this whole mask discussion and debate, at the height of all this, you know, there was um, a lot of fear among school administrators about, you know, what was going to happen legally and insurance-wise, what their insurance covered. And I was actually supposed to speak to Arizona educators, teachers, um, superintendents, school districts, about incorporating more API education in K-12. through and I was replaced by an insurance agent because that's basically what was at the top of the minds. At that moment, everyone was basically trying to cover their asses mm. about that. Okay, I see. And so I did follow up with an email and asked if I could, when the time was right, if I could present again. Mm-hmm. And that question was was dodged. How, how did they dodge that exactly? Well, just not give me a time to re-present. I see, yeah. I see. Well, are you going to keep trying? Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, at the same time, there's this whole anti-CRT discussion that's going on. Critical race um, theory. Critical race theory in the nation that makes it a little bit difficult. I mean, here in Arizona, there was a law passed, and I don't know when exactly, but sometime in the early summer banning the teaching of critical race theory. It just seemed kind of absurd because you're preemptively striking something down. Critical race theory, it's not even something that's taught at the K-12 level. I had to look it up when I first heard it because I didn't really understand. But to me, this has nothing to do with API curriculum. Like it's just, to me, these are completely different issues. Before that, lawmakers were trying to pass a law banning controversial issues from being taught, which is even a broader, right? So, yeah. so it's like, That's, so what, what do you consider controversial, what right? exactly? Yeah, is controversial, yeah. right? Like history mm-hmm. is controversial, like because power, privilege, and it's all these terms that you, that could potentially come up like in a history class if you talk mm-hmm. about imperialism or colonialism, right? What you decide to teach and how you decide to teach it can be considered controversial. So initially, so that got shot down and then somewhere along the line it was rewritten and the wording came out to be no CRT. But when you go to these school board meetings, their number one thing is they're very concerned that white children will feel bad about themselves. And it sounds like you went to some meetings. Are, are they generally parents of, of school children who are coming to these? Or are they some people who are just like so passionate about this cause that they're just there? It's funny because like many parents never really got involved until... You know, the issue of masking came up. So probably the school boards were very, very um, shocked to see all these parents come to these school board meetings. Right. But I think, yeah, you see a lot of parents. But then there was one guy who said he he came out and said he drives from district to district 
going to these meetings, speaking what? out against CRT. Yeah, so, so 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 there is. I mean, it's it's a whole mix, and it really depends on what the agenda is that day. Wow. So he's just making it sort of his his mission to go around and whether or not it's his community, hers or his children. It's just he's really. Yeah, that that's his cause. Wow. Okay. I mean, we all have causes, and if you think about it, these are public meetings, right? Right. So he just he has a cause I don't really support or identify with, but so far that group has done very well in controlling the narrative. You know, this moment, this fervor that you're describing amongst these folks who are going around to these meetings, it really exemplifies something that's like bigger than, you know, local issues. It's bigger than any one issue. It's just this like anger. I mean, I think here in Arizona, it's this confluence. It's this anti-masking, anti-CRT, and the big steal, which is, you know, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Those, All those three kind of have balled in together here in this state. In September, a county judge ruled that a ban on mask mandates was unconstitutional. But by then, Yvonne had already signed up two of her kids— Jasper and Miles, for an online charter school called Lehman Academy. The kids have one hour of live sessions with their teacher. So my kids go in from 10 to 11, and each day they teach a different subject. One day will be history, one day will be English, one day will be math, and that's their live class of the day. But then they have all the rest of the other curriculum that they have to get through on their own time. And so every day from Monday to Thursday, they're responsible for submitting all the work that's due. And then on Fridays, that is a test day to to make sure that they cover the material correctly. And then you do it all over again. (laughs) There was no extra tuition to pay for this charter school. And it wasn't difficult to get the kids enrolled. So the switch was pretty smooth. But one big difference is that Yvonne started taking on more of a homeschooling role to make this work. My kids are nine and six, so if it's up to them, you know, like, <laughs> they'd be in the pool all day or outside of the driveway. Um, they, like, kids just have no sense of time management. So it's like, I'm basically a drill sergeant saying, okay, get here, you have class, do this assignment, do that assignment. But they do the assignments themselves, and I'm in charge of submitting them and making sure they get everything in on time. So far, everything's actually going pretty good for Yvonne's family. The kids like spending time with their parents, and they get a lot of support from them. They like being able to hang out with each other, and they haven't had any problems keeping up with the online learning. At the end of our call, I got to meet Yvonne's middle son. He's six years old and in the first grade. Hi, Miss Kathy. My name is Miles. Hi, Miles. <laughs> so, how was your day at school today? Good. It went good. What'd you learn? I learned math and history. Egypt? Ooh. No, no, no. About the planets. About the planets. I want to tell you a joke. Oh, yeah, please. What did the star say to the other star? Hmm, what? We can have a sleepover. I have so much space. (laughs) You get, like, space because stars are up in space. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I love it.
On Self-Evident, we do our best to tell stories from every corner of Asian America. So we're really excited that some of our friends just launched a new podcast called Where Y'all Really From? in a place you might not expect, Kentucky. The Bluegrass State is home to over 70,000 Asian Americans. But as you might guess, their lives aren't exactly like what we're used to hearing about in places like New York or L.A. Went to San Francisco, and I remember in the first week I was there, I saw an Asian mailman, and I blew my friggin' mind. <laughs> like, coming from coming from Lexington, Kentucky, I was like, wait, what? That's a thing? And then I, and then I saw an Asian American cop, and then I saw an Asian American garbage man. And it was just like, oh, we're literally everywhere in every profession. You know, versus being in a place like uh, Kentucky. I mean, it's culture shock. I mean, you could have culture shock, I think, yeah. from going from one place to another. Yeah, it, it really was. Check out Where Y'all Really From wherever you get podcasts or at whereyallreallyfrom.org. This is Self-Evident. I'm Kathy Irway. And I was just chatting with Yvonne and Miles So, whose family in Arizona is doing okay with their new school year. We heard from some Asian-American families who were really happy for in-person schooling to come back. But, of course, the kind of experience anyone's having in this new school year depends on a lot of factors. Where I live in New York, we haven't seen the same amount of anti-mask or anti-vaccine conflicts as Yvonne's family has in Arizona, but it's just flat-out hard to run the classroom and take care of everyone. We caught up with our friend Annie Tan, who's a fifth-grade special education teacher at a public school in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. That's a neighborhood of mostly working-class Latinx and Chinese immigrant families. By the way, this phone call with Annie happened before the CDC approved vaccinations for children. There's just a lot of unresolved trauma from the last year. You know, my students today were talking about how their grandparents and their uncles and other relatives like died from the coronavirus. And I didn't really know how to address it. I just said, I'm so sorry. I know we're gonna have a lot of kids who need therapy and grief counseling. And we're gonna see a lot of behaviors of students who aren't ready for school right now. Kids are like really excited to talk to each other, to talk to their teachers, but I feel like I'm policing bodies much more now than I ever have. And I keep having to remind them to like distance, to mask. And if they have something like cold symptoms, I have to report it to the office and send them down to the nurse and it doesn't feel good. I know it's for our kids' safety, but at the same time, like some of those students, some of which I had last year, told me that they prefer remote learning. They got to eat whenever they needed because they were hungry. They got to use the bathroom whenever they needed. And as a teacher, for instance, like I have never peed more than I have during the pandemic because I got to take a break and pee whenever I wanted to instead of watching my classroom. A student said today, you know, I have to use all the bathroom all the time. How come you don't miss Tim? And I said to the student that teachers, nurses, and truck drivers have the highest rates of infections down there. And then down there, I like did a motion to the bottom half of my body. And the student was like, ew, you're oversharing, Miss Tan. I was like, well, you asked. 
why I don't pee, it's because I'm watching y'all. Um, it would be nice to be in a world where teachers could pee, let alone like take care of ourselves instead of worrying all the time about taking care of other people. And teaching has just exacerbated the idea that like I'm not to care for myself. And it is not a coincidence that my profession is mostly women. We heard from advocates that Asian American families were more likely to say yes to a remote learning option. I think we're used to hearing about parents like Yvonne choosing to help educate their kids, or parents trying to manage working from home while their kids were learning from home. But there's another reason why some Asian American parents found themselves at home with their kids over the past year and a half. Most of our community was unemployed because of the pandemic, and so they had people at home, and they chose to keep their kids home. That's Dia Basusen, executive director of SUPNA NYC, an organization based in the East Bronx, New York, providing social services to lower-income South Asian immigrant women. The rates of unemployment was almost 95%. Almost everybody had at least one person out of work, if not everyone out of work in their homes. Many of them were struggling to pay rent, haven't paid rent in months. Many of them were facing food insecurity. Almost everybody knows at least somebody who passed away in the pandemic. Multiple of the families we work with were survivors of DV. So for the kids going back, it's it's not just the kind of difficulty of going back, but also just the difficulty of this whole kind of pandemic on them and how much they've been holding. And this just being like one more stress to add to that. And this stress has led to a rise in requests for help from Asian-centered community services like the one Dia's leading. We also called Yu Kang Chen, who works as a clinical psychologist at the Hamilton Madison House in Manhattan Chinatown. It's a community health clinic that serves all ages, most of them lower income and many of them speaking Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese, or Cambodian languages. We asked Yu Kang what the students coming to the clinic have been dealing with as the school year really got going. Well, some of the cases, the new cases we have noticed is being uh, staying at home most of the time. Uh, study from home, online study, and very isolated. So probably there's already some some mood, depression, issues, symptoms happening already. So the reopening of the school, going back to school kind of intensify because it is a stress. And also this is in the context that some of the, the students, they return to a, maybe still in the same school, but, but totally different classmates different teachers, right? So they did not get a chance to have like a proper farewell goodbye to, to their old friends or, or classmates, teachers. So that kind of add on to their, not just stress, right? Maybe some, you know, lost, the feeling of lost. These kind of sound like challenges that any student would be dealing with right now. But Dia and Yu Kang see that the obstacles are bigger for immigrant families, especially working poor immigrant parents. A lot of times, those parents would love to receive help from someone who really understands what they're going through. They just don't have the time or the capacity or even the awareness to get that help. Parents are first-generation immigrants, don't speak English as a first language, and, and 
work long hours, and so already not not enough time and energy to to spend on the children. And the community we work with, right, is low income, low English proficiency, low digital proficiency and access. So for parents to also kind of work to acclimate their children and to have all the information before they get to school is much more difficult than it might be for like an average English-speaking American family. The positive things we've seen is there have been individual kind of teachers or counselors who've reached out to us and been like, I think this family might need some help. Like, are you someone who could help our uh, this family? Because they know that we work with South Asians and have Bengali speakers. Ultimately, right, the school system can't have competency in all the different languages and all the different cultures. And so just trying to build some more of those bridges, I think, is really important. It's part of our work to provide concrete help and also find a way to empower the, the, the parents that they can they can become the people to advocate for, for, for their children's benefit. So I do, you know, want to send out a message. And we also talk about seeking help. Asking help is really not a weakness or shameful thing to, to ask for help. It's never too late. The last folks we'll hear from today have navigated a lot of the challenges that come from becoming so isolated during the pandemic, then suddenly being jolted back into a weird version of normal life. My name is Kyle Desai Hunt. I'm a junior and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I use any pronouns, so she, he, and they are all fine. Kyle went into remote learning at the end of their freshman year, then spent all of sophomore year studying from home. So they never really got the chance to explore life as a new high schooler. We met at the end of October. By that time, they were vaccinated and told us that most of the students were pretty good about wearing masks. But Kyle still wasn't 100% comfortable with being back in the classroom and is still kind of figuring out how to be a high school student. For me, it's been weird. It's both very familiar and feels very different after Mm. being away for more than a year online. So it's nice to see friends and have that like social interaction in person. But a little bit of an adjustment and getting back used to being, oh, this is how we do this. And, you know, <laughs> we're actually face to face again. There's a board yeah. here. Things are written on it. <laughs> exactly. And yet it also, and in some ways it's so weird because to me it feels like the last year just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like it it just got erased and it feels like we didn't even go online. So it's like a weird combination of things, yeah. Do you feel like this could happen again where you have to like just leave and drop everything and and kind of oh, be away yeah. from people at any second? I, I think teachers are preparing for it, but no one knows when it's going to happen. For me at least, I have not gotten any information on like the number of cases before they're going to shut down the school or, you know, that sort of stuff. So it's a little scary because it feels like we're the last people to know that kind of information. Oh, And it's not physically possible to social distance in our classes because Mm -hmm. classrooms are not that big. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it's not like, you know, the air that we breathe, even though we're all wearing masks, it's not like it stops within three feet of us. (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) Yeah. Kyle's got one older brother. And their mom, Jigna, is a full-time professor at the University of Minnesota. 
My name is Jigna Desai. I use she, they pronouns, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I've lived here somehow over 25 years. My parents and I are from India, and I was born there, and I came here when I was two and a half. And in fact, my mom and I just celebrated our 50th anniversary of being in this country like a couple weeks ago. Throughout the pandemic, Jigna felt like she was always looking out for her extended family, trying to keep everyone safe and healthy and in touch, which was incredibly hard to do because Jigna's partner is immunocompromised. That's actually why Kyle is still thinking so much about COVID at school. Their dad has been at high risk since the pandemic started, and that's really shaped the entire family's experience during the lockdown and even now after vaccinations. So my partner is white and chronically disabled, has had stage four uh, melanoma and had mm-hmm. a rare response to the immunotherapy and is the only surviving um, person right now with this condition, which basically attacked his own body wow. and develops this capillary leak. So he's kind of drowning from the inside out. We live in Minnesota, so we went to the Mayo and by all miracles, they saved him. And we were talking to his oncologist there last week, and he said, you know, there was less than a 10% chance of his surviving. But he did. We spent six weeks in the hospital. I stayed there. I lived there the whole time. We brought him home to recover a little bit and not knowing what his condition would be, except that he's disabled. And so he's immunocompromised now. So when COVID started happening, we actually pulled our children from school before the schools closed until the kids could be vaccinated and until I could be vaccinated. You know, we didn't see anyone. People didn't come in our homes. We didn't go visit other people's homes. I visited my parents outside. My sister, she was juggling a toddler and (sighs) doing a job and her partner's a firefighter and was gone and was a frontline worker. So we couldn't see her (laughs) because he could bring COVID home. And that was the kind of risk decisions that people were making. Mm -hmm. But my kids were home entire year of 2019, 2020. And my son barely left his room. He used Discord for his sense of community. Okay. And... That was it. He was on Discord when he was in class. He was on Discord when he was not in class. And he was depressed. I think it was hard to get out of bed. It was hard to do anything. It was hard to convince him to leave his room, let alone the house. My daughter responded very differently. She did all the things, you know, she baked, she went for walks, she exercised, but she was depressed too. And I think that even as everybody else started going back and socializing, they couldn't Mm -hmm. or they were worried about it because of their dad. And that sense of risk that they had to manage of we have to isolate ourselves or we have to endanger our father was a horrible decision that they felt they had to make as teenagers who were deprived of their entire social worlds. Our school stayed closed and opened up, I would say, maybe February. February 2021, so this year? Yes. And maybe a third of students went back. 
not a lot of students of color went back, actually. What I was hearing is that people didn't trust schools to be able to keep their children safe, Mm -hmm. that there wasn't social distancing or it wouldn't be adequate. And this is still in the spring as vaccines are rolling out, but children aren't vaccinated. Honestly, I don't think people trusted a lot of white families and a lot of families who were very well off, who were going off to travel or going to Disneyland or going on vacation. Families where there were extended families living together, multi-generational families. They didn't want to be the ones to bring home illness to their grandparents or to elders or to immunocompromised folks. So um, sure. teachers did their best. And, you know, they're putting their lives at risk and they had children or elders or themselves, obviously. Everybody was making these tough decisions. But it felt like a rush to open. Mm. And I understand that your kids recently went back to in-person school in the last month or two. How has that transition been? They're so much more anxious than they used to be. I think they feel so much more to me, a sense of hopelessness about the world. Okay. And I think it's, you know, it's really complex because there was our own personal kind of them having to face the near loss of their dad. Then we had the pandemic. In the middle of the pandemic, George Floyd was murdered not more than three miles from our home. The precinct that was burned down, you know, is less than a mile from their school. These are our neighborhoods. My daughter and I went to the first protest and we went to many protests. And then it's all part of this kind of convergence of things that feel really hopeless for them. And then on top of that is climate change. And so it's the immediate sense of lack of change, like with something like police violence, state violence. Right. You know, people don't vaccinate, people don't wear masks. And then it's the longer term of the climate justice where things, you know, could change and don't. And I think it's a triple whammy for this generation. Mm -hmm. And they were already feeling the sense of hopelessness and disposability within capitalism, that the things that just keep grinding and extracting and using and throwing away people they see that all around them. Things can't continue the way they're continuing. Mm-hmm. I see. And I see that in my kids, except I don't think they even have faith in a lot of humans a lot of time as a collective. They don't have a faith in democracy in the same way. That's a lot for teenagers to juggle all at once. Yes. And then to be Asian Americans, South Asian Americans who don't even get read that way. I think the teens really feel it. And so I feel like I can arm them with as much as possible and it's still not enough. That feeling Jigna brought up, that combination of things seeming so suddenly different, but also not changing at all, the loss of faith, it was heartbreaking to hear. Before hopping off the phone, I asked Kyle if they ever feel like there isn't much hope. That's a deep question. I think for me, definitely, yes. I often feel like, you know, in terms of like climate change or even like racial justice, we've already passed a lot of tipping points of certain things and it's it's almost too late to go back. Mm. It's difficult because a lot of the news that we receive is this like 
wave of like, here's all of the bad things that happened today. And at the same time, it kind of switches for me. There are times when I feel like this is doable. I feel optimistic. And I think, you know, seeing people work against that and work for better change or, you know, progress within communities or things like that. I think that makes me hopeful. What's like a recent interaction that you had with another person that was kind of nice or satisfying or different? Honestly, like everything is, it's really nice. Like I would say sitting down and having lunch with my friends, which is like you know, quintessential high school experience, just being able to sit down next to them physically in person and talk, you know, is super nice because any other time we would do it would be like separated by a screen or we would be texting or something like that. So just being able to like have a conversation is amazing, honestly. So given this crazy year and the ongoing pandemic, does it make you think about your future any differently than you think you might have beforehand? Everything from deciding to go to college or like buying a house, maybe having children or something like that in the future. Has that shaken up any of your goals? I think yes and no. For me, some of those things I had thought about before, not like super in depth, but I think it definitely makes me feel like I have to decide about them or plan ahead more because there are things that we can't prepare for. Housing pricing is going up. And like in terms of college and buying a house and children, they seem like almost impossible tasks in some ways. I still am interested personally in going to college after high school. Like that part of it hasn't changed I think the pressure of, you know, the future and what we want or have to accomplish has intensified to some degree. The stakes are higher than they have been in the past. And I feel like there's a higher pressure on us to do better and to fix all of this. Growing up with that makes it more difficult in some ways. That doesn't mean we're not going to try. I feel like people that I know in my generation, we're still going to fight for a better future. But I think I wouldn't necessarily say I'm optimistic about how it will turn out. This episode was produced by Julia Shu and James Boo. We were edited by Julia Shu and fact-checked by Harsha Nahata. Sound mix by Timothy Luli. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our theme music is by Dorian Love. You didn't hear from everyone who recorded a phone call with us in the final episode, so we just wanted to thank them here. That's Arzu Bukta, Ju Han, Kelly Ung, and her kids Ruby and Marlo, and Yuna Yoon. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Special thanks to our friends Katie Kwan, Sylvia Pung, Jennifer Ho, and Julia Gay for helping us with our outreach for this episode. Self-Evident is a Studio to Be production. Our executive producer is Ken Akeda. This episode was made with support from PRX and the Google Podcast Creator Program. And of course, our listener community. More resources and a transcript of this episode are available at selfevidentshow.com. I'm Kathy Irway. Let's talk soon.
Until then, keep sending me your kids' best stand-up comedy material. Oh, what, are you still here? This is James again. Uh, please donate money. We're raising money. You should go to selfevidentshow.com slash supporters and make a tax-deductible donation. All donations doubled while we have our matching donor. And we'll see you next time.